0: The scripture reading this morning is from uh, Romans 5, 6 through 10. And I'll be reading from the NIV. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, although for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us, in this while we were still sinners Christ died for us since we have now been justified by his blood how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him for if while we were God's enemies we were reconciled to him through the death of his son how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life atonement Atonement is one of those theological sounding words that many of us would rather just work our way around and try to find some other word to use. And yet, in English, it is still the best word to understand what is going on with Jesus at the cross and why he is dying for our sins. What happens in that moment? Now, since we know that these theological words, when we throw them around, they can confuse us, they can be words that are not normally a part of our vocabulary, and so I think God knows that, so in his word, he gives us some pictures to help us understand what he means by this, and he comes at it from multiple angles. It gives us a lot of different vantage points of what is going on with Jesus at the cross. I'm going to call these today, to borrow a term from Timothy Keller, we'll call these atonement languages or languages of atonement. Because these are things that we can relate to a little more. And every one of these scenarios that the Bible is going to give us, you have a place in them. You are part of the scenario. Jesus has a place in this scenario as well. And our goal today is to, to gather a greater appreciation for the work of Jesus and what has happened on my behalf at the cross. We cannot understand the depths of the gospel without going into that. So let's go into atonement together today as we look at these different languages. And here's the three questions I'm going to have you ask as we're going to look at five of these, or at least five of these that are used in the scriptures. There's, There's a lot more, but five that we're going to look at today. Here's the three questions that I want us to consider as we look at each of these. Where does this language place me without Jesus? If Jesus was not there, if the cross had not happened, where would I be? And where was I before I came into union with Jesus? Where does this language, of each of these languages we're going to look at, where does this language place me without Jesus? The second question is this, where does this language place Jesus? Who is he in this scenario? And the third question is this, where does this language place me once I'm in Jesus? Apart from Jesus... Where is Jesus? And then where am I now that I am in Jesus? Those are the three questions I want you to think through as we look at each of these. The first one that we come to that the Bible is going to use is the language of the battlefield. Something that the ancient world knew a lot about, something that we know a lot about in our world today as well some of the language that's going to be used to describe the work of Jesus is in terms of him fighting battle for us. Now, the gospel of the New Testament is not the first place that this is going to be used. You're going to see some anticipation of this, even in some of the battle language of the Old Testament. L- listen to this, for example. This is after Moses has led the people through the Red Sea. God's brought them to the other side of it, and they're going to sing a song on the other side of that. And hear the words of, some of the words of this song. Then Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song to the Lord and said, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will extol him. Now watch this. The Lord is a warrior, The Lord is his name. Right after a salvation event has happened, a rescue event has happened, we see that God is described in terms of being a warrior. He has fought a battle on behalf of his people. Now think about how this language is applied in the New Testament when we talk about Jesus. Some passages like Galatians chapter 1 verse 4. Who gave himself, speaking of Jesus, for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age. The language of rescue is intertwined with this idea of fighting a battle on our behalf. Check this one out. Colossians chapter 1 verse 13. This is an idea that we're going to get into more in our War Against the Darkness series that we started last week. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. There is a rescue effort that has happened on our behalf to get us out of one domain and to get us into another and he is a warrior who has taken that on himself. Jesus in these scenarios is that warrior. Here's another one later in Colossians, chapter 2, verse 15. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, you hear that military language going on there? He made a public display of them having triumphed over them through it, and that is the cross. There is a warfare that is going on in the events surrounding the cross, and Jesus is at the center of that. So in this battlefield language when we're talking about atonement, where does this place us? Well, it places us first in a position of being in a position of defeat. A position of being a hostage in a hostile kingdom. That is where we are without Jesus. Where does it place Jesus? Well, it places him as the warrior who was sent on a rescue mission to defeat Jesus the hostile kingdom, where we were held as hostages. And where does it put us once we are in Jesus? It means that in Jesus, we are no longer in a position of defeat. We're no longer in a position of oppression. We're in a position of victory. We're part of the kingdom which will never be destroyed. Language number one, the language of the battlefield. Language number two, the language of the marketplace. Consider some of this language that's used in the Bible and three terms specifically that are going to be used to describe the work of Jesus in many places here. One is the idea of him making a purchase. Check this out from Revelation 5 verse 9. You, talking to Jesus, were slain. It's talking about his work on the cross, what happened at the cross. It says, and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation." Many of these passages are going to say that the blood of Christ serves as some type of currency. It is a payment. It is a purchase. And this is central to the idea of understanding what atonement means. Because sin places us in a position of being in debt. And in the ancient world, where slavery was very active, one of the ways that you could end up a slave was because if, if, if you had a debt that you could not pay. It puts you in a position where there was a price over your head, and the only way that you could even continue to exist was you would be trying to pay off your debts through your labor. But <clears throat> those debts may have been insurmountable, where no matter how much labor, how much work you put into it, you couldn't just get yourself out of debt. There is a price on your head. This scenario is placing you in that position of being a slave with a debt that is too great for you to be able to pay. And with the only currency that is going to pay that debt to be something more than what any of us can offer. Purchase for God with your blood. You see it here in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, the church of God, which he, Jesus, purchased with his own blood. You see this idea in Matthew 20, verse 28, from the words of Jesus, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That's the purchase language. That's you being a hostage now in a situation of being a slave with a price on your head. And he paid that ransom for you to buy you out of that. 1 Timothy 2, verse 6, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. Titus 2, verse 14, who gave himself for us, and here's another of these important words that plays a role in the marketplace, to redeem us from every lawless deed. To redeem is to purchase. It is to pay the ransom price. It is to buy back. It is to take something that is in a position of slavery and it is, it is to set it free. And to give it its its... It's purpose. And if it's a person, then we're talking about going from being slaves, which the Bible says that we are. Jesus says in John chapter 8, everyone who sins is a slave of sin. Sin has a way of gaining control over us whether we realize it or not. And the debt that we have accrued is far too much for any of us to ever pay. The language of the marketplace comes to a head here in 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 18 and 19 when he uses this redemption language. Listen to this. This is writing to Christians, but as a reminder of the price that was paid on our behalf. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. I was talking about currencies that we hold in high value in our world, the most precious things we can imagine. Silver, gold, those are inadequate to pay the price, the ransom price that was on each of our heads because of what sin had done to us. Here's the only thing that can redeem us. It was the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ the language of the marketplace tells us that without Jesus we are slaves Jesus in this scenario is the redeemer he's the one who pays our price to get us out of slavery and now that we are in him we go from the status of being slaves to the status of being sons and daughters in his household. The third language that the Bible is going to use to give us a different angle on atonement is the language of the temple. And really, this is especially targeted to someone who's coming from a a Jewish mindset where this was such a central part of their faith, the understanding of what temple was. Temple was a place that was supposed to be a shared space between God and his people. A place where they can meet a holy God and worship that holy God, have fellowship with that holy God. And there are priests who are mediators of that who who work to try to make that possible. Now here's some of how this language is going to be used in the New Testament. To describe the work of Jesus. Romans 3 verse 25 is going to use one of these terms that's related to atonement and it's a priesthood term, it's a temple term, it's a sacrifice term, it's the word propitiation. It's another one of those terms where sometimes you're reading the Bible and you may just want to skip over it. But let's stop and let's think about what it means. Another way of describing this term is the atoning sacrifice. You know the book of Leviticus Spells out the details of what was required. If there was unholiness, uncleanness, then something had to pay the price in order to bring you from a state of uncleanness, unholiness, into a state of holiness. Propitiation is one of the words that describes what is going on there. It is related to the very place where God would sit in the most holy place on what's called the mercy seat and where blood was sprinkled by the high priest once a year on the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, making an offering on behalf of the people, a propitiation for their sins. Romans three verse twenty five says part of what is going on with Jesus on the cross is the blood that he is shedding is a propitiation. It is an atoning sacrifice on the behalf of others. First John two verse two uses this language. He himself is the propitiation for our sins. Sin is the problem, propitiation is the solution. And not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Check out this passage from later in First John chapter 4, verse 10. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Hebrews 2, verse 17. Hebrews has a lot of this temple language, this priesthood language, this atonement language related to the temple. Listen to what it says about Jesus. He had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. Here's the purpose of that. Jesus described as high priest to make propitiation for the sins of the people. I'm just trying to show you how many times this idea comes up in the scriptures. It's a lot. Later in Hebrews, it's going to say this about the sacrifice which Jesus offers. Hebrews 10, verses 11 through 14. It starts talking about how every priest, priesthood in general, and then it's going to move toward what Jesus does as our high priest. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. There are limitations on those sacrifices under the Levitical temple system. But here's the difference with Jesus. Here's why the whole temple theme was pointing to him. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, not an annual day of atonement, one sacrifice, one propitiation for all sins for all time, at least those who would accept that atonement, for by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified those who are made holy now all of this language together when you talk about the temple where does it place you without Jesus without Jesus you are in a condition of uncleanness of impurity of unholiness the Bible is going to use all those words to describe you and that makes you unfit to approach a holy God it puts you at a distance from him who is Jesus in this scenario? Jesus is both the high priest and he is the sacrifice. He is both the one who makes the, who is the blood that's offered and he is the one who administers the offering and presents it to the Father. And then who are we once we are in Jesus in this language? Well, we go instead of being unclean, instead of being impure, we are made holy we are made clean we are made pure we are made sanctified where we can be in fellowship with a holy God and where our own bodies can be a temple where he can live with us the language of the battlefield, the language of the marketplace, the language of the temple, here's another really important one as the language of the law courts you know Dave talked about the the Romans earlier. The Romans were very influential in world history on the law. They, they had a very detailed law and, and had, you know, tried to administer law and order throughout their empire as best that they could and so they had a more detailed law that maybe some other civilizations had had in the past. A lot of what we do today is still based on that Roman law or it's based on what came before it, the Hebrew law of the Old Testament. The Bible's going to use both of those languages. language of the law of the Jews is going to use the language of the law of the land of that time. It's going to use that as an image to help us see where we are in this scenario. This is legal language. Here's what it's going to say about Jesus and where he fits into this. This courtroom scenario where you and I are all a part of this. Christ also died for sins once for all. The just... For the unjust, now that's legal language there, the just for the unjust, Jesus being the just, each of us being unjust, this is putting us in a position of having been guilty of sin. And when there is guilt, there is an assumed punishment that goes along with that guilt as an extension of that. The Bible says that there are wages of sin. The wages of sin is death. It is the condition that we have deserved. Through our injustice, our injustice, we are in a condition of being unjust, unrighteous. We are not right in the eyes of God once sin has entered into our lives. Jesus was the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh. Now here's another one of those words that's going to sum this up. It's the word justified or justification. What that means is to go from being in the wrong, to go from being guilty to being not guilty, to go from the status of wrong to the status of right. Right. In the eyes of God. To go from unrighteous to righteous in how God sees you. To be justified is to be declared righteous. Romans chapter 3 verse 28 is going to say, among a large section of Romans that talks about this idea of justification, this is law court language, we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Now faith in whom? Well, let's think about this. It's going to specify that this is going to be all about Jesus. He's the reason that we can be justified, or this idea here, having righteousness credited to us. This passage in Romans 4 is going to look back at Abraham, and it's going to look back at him as someone who also had righteousness that he did not earn. It was credited to him because of his faith. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him. Here's where we come into it. But for our sake also, to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Now, who is this Jesus? What spells it out for us here, he who was delivered over because of our transgressions. Because of the areas where I have failed, that's another legal term there, to transgress the law is to to go beyond what has been written. I have transgressed what is there. I am in a state of being guilty, but Jesus was delivered over because I am guilty. And he was raised, because of our justification, he was raised to complete the process of making me righteous in the eyes of God. Romans 5, verses 6 through 9. This is right from our scripture reading today. While we were still helpless, that's the language of being in the position on the battlefield of being under a hostile kingdom, being in a position of helpless, or the language of the marketplace where we're a slave. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, that's starting to get into the language of of both the temple and of the law courts. We're guilty. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love to us in that while we were yet sinners, which captures all of this that we're talking about, of the condition we were in, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You ever heard anyone say, well, let me get my life in order and then I'll give it to Jesus? As if we could. Jesus did not die for those who have done as much as they can on their own and then they'll just let him take, the rest, take them the rest of the way. He died for us while we were ungodly, helpless sinners. Slaves, captives, unclean, filthy, and guilty. Guilty. And it says here, much more than having now been justified by his blood. Become righteous by his blood. His blood not only pays that marketplace price, his blood, because he is righteous, his blood through that payment can make us righteous. And thus we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 sums up the law court language and what it means that Jesus died on our behalf. He being God made him being Jesus who knew no sin means he's completely sinless, not guilty at all of nothing. To be sin. To absorb our sin into himself. To be sin on our behalf. So that, here's your result, So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So that whenever I stand before the judge in this scenario, without him, the language of the law court says that I am guilty. And I am ready for a verdict that says I am guilty. And here's the wages of of the guilt of a crime that, that I have done. And I am standing there with nothing to plea Except Jesus in this scenario is our legal advocate. He's our legal advocate, our lawyer who steps in on our behalf and says, instead of his injustice being what leads to his penalty, let me take on his penalty so that he can have my righteousness, so that he can be right in your sight that's the language of the law courts that's the legal language here of atonement that without Jesus I'm guilty but Jesus steps in on my behalf and in him I'm declared not guilty I have my record expunged as we might say in our criminal justice world one more language I want to talk about it's a language of exile. This one you may not see as obvious in the scriptures, but exile, especially if you were a Jew in the time of this, you had a whole history of understanding how painful the idea of exile is. Exile expresses being taken away from home. It expresses alienation, being broken from those relationships that you treasured, from being apart from that. Here's some of the language that's going to be used when you think about what happens at the cross itself about Jesus. Just see the idea of exile here, even in how Jesus is treated in that moment of crucifixion. Hebrews 13, 11 and 12. The bodies of those animals, looking back to the Levitical system, the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin, are burned outside the camp. The idea there was the, to avoid contamination of the deadness that was part of those, those corpses now. But here's the connection that the book of Hebrews is going to make to Jesus and what happens at the cross. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, there's some more atonement language, suffered outside the gate. you can verify this historically when you look at where people were crucified. If someone was convicted of something in the city of Jerusalem, there were city gates, walls, wall around the city and there's a gate to that. And part of your march to Golgotha, the place of the skull, Calvary, also called the particular hill that's there at Golgotha. Your march there where you carry your cross as far as you can at least, physically capable of carrying, was to put you outside the city. The Passover is going on inside the city. They don't want anything contaminated inside there. That's part of the reason. It was Jewish reasons, purity reasons. They didn't want any of that going on. Someone being killed inside their city while that's going on. The other reason is this. Both the Romans and the Jews want to make an example of you that if you're guilty of something worthy of execution you don't even get the honor of dying with your people you're cut off from them you're alienated from them you're not part of our community you're outside the gates Jesus was exiled in his last moments think of what Isaiah 53 is going to say about it. he was despised and forsaken of men that means we pushed him away Isaiah later in that chapter, verse 8. He was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people. That's exile language. Jesus being cut off, exiled. Earlier in that chapter, all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We have been in exile. We have wandered away. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity which is the turning away, the exile that we brought on ourselves, the iniquity of us all to fall on him. And that's why Colossians 1, verses 21 and 22 can say something like this. Although you, you were in the scenario. You were formerly alienated. Another way of saying cut off, lonely and hostile in mind and gays and evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you where? How? How does he do this? At the cross, in his fleshly body through death, in order to present you before him holy and blameless, temple language, law court language, blameless, and beyond reproach. The language of exile is telling us this. Without Jesus, just as the Jews went through their own exile as part of their sin, we are all in a position of exile. We have a gap between us and a holy God. We've broken our relationships in many ways, and they've been broken for us in other ways that maybe we're not responsible for, but we we feel a brokenness in our relationships. We are alienated from each other and from God. We're cut off. We're exiled. We're fragmented. Look at the world around us if you don't believe that. The violence is going on because people feel lonely because they hate other groups that are different from them or whatever is going on. We are fragmented people, cut off, broken, alienated. We're in exile. Where does this language place Jesus? Jesus enters into our exile he's got no reason to be exiled but he makes himself that way he allows himself to be cut off from his people but he does that so that by taking on our exile we can be reconciled made friends again with God and with each other we belong outside the gates he belongs inside the gates He went outside the gates so that we could be in the gates with God and with each other. He cut himself off so that we could have community together. Now, when you look at all five of these that the Bible uses, I'm convinced that one of the reasons why the Bible uses so many different pictures here is to appeal to a broad range of people. Now, think about this throughout world history. Some of you here may not realize how much each of these applies to you. Some people in our world really do, some of these in particular. You think about that language of the battlefield and of the marketplace. Do you think that could have an appeal to someone who has truly been in a position of being a literal slave or being in oppression of some sense? someone who is being used by others, who's being controlled by others, and you come along with a message in the gospel that says, here's someone who can free you from that. Now the whole point of this is that all of us should be able to relate to that because we are all in a position of sin and enslaved to sin, and we're all part of that that kingdom of darkness until Jesus translates us into his kingdom of light. But don't you think that would have some special appeal for someone who's in a position of oppression that that really knows that? How good of news is that to them when they hear that Jesus can set them free from that? How about this? You ever feel guilty? Do you feel dirty? For those who feel unclean, who feel dirty, who feel unworthy in some way, do you think that language of the temple and that Jesus has made it possible for you to be considered clean in the eyes of God again? Do you think that would have appealed to you? Those of you who carry around shame because of something that you've done, do you think this idea here, those of you that may have been in trouble with the law in the past, may have committed a crime, may know what that's like to stand before a judge, and have to give an answer for something that you've done, and have the expectation of a just penalty for something that you've done, and then to have your record expunged? Do you think that language has some excitement for you? If you feel lonely, if you feel broken, do you think that language of exile has something to say to you? That Jesus, through him, can bring you back into a family where you can have relationships again? Every one of these have some one theme that runs through the heart element. It's this. It's substitution. The battle that you were not strong enough to fight, Jesus stepped in and fought it for you. The price that you had accrued, the debt on yourself that you could never pay off, you have no, don't even have the currency to pay it off, Jesus stepped in and paid it for you the unholiness that you were in the uncleanness that you had and no way of getting back into holiness by anything that you could do you're tainted you're contaminated Jesus purified you through his purity the guilt that you had upon yourself with the wages of sin being death and That being the just penalty and knowing that that's the expectation and knowing that there's no plea that you can make to get yourself out of that. Jesus stepped in and made that plea for you. Paid the just penalty for you. And your brokenness, your alienation, your exile, not being able to get back to relationships the way they were intended to be Jesus entered into that for you, cut himself off from the people, was despised and forsaken a man so that you could have family. You know, I'm going to use something for a moment, it may make some of you cringe a little bit, so heads up on that. But I think it's a powerful illustration. Have you ever had a wound? a sore on your skin somewhere and it gets infected. And you know when that opens up, you know the nasty stuff that starts to, to drain out of there. Uh, we call it pus. Do you know what pus is? <laughs> you may know it doesn't smell good, it doesn't look good. But do you know what it is? Pus is the collection of the corpses, of the white blood cells. The white blood cells from your body that have given their lives to fight the infection that otherwise might take your life. The pus is the white blood cells, it's the symbol that something stepped in and fought on your behalf and died so that you may live. You don't think substitutionary atonement is a valid principle. You carry it around in your own blood with you. It's part of how God designed you. What is our culture doing with our struggle against good and evil? Everyone acknowledges that it's there. You, you look at the, the books and the films that are made. What do so many of them have at the heart of that struggle? What's the only solution that so many of them come to at the end? Don't they often have one individual who is able to do something on behalf of other people that those other people were not able to do for themselves and it comes at great cost for that person? Whether that's J.K. Rowling making Harry Potter that character, or whether that's someone else, you know, the Matrix stories, whether it's Neo stepping in and offering his life, or the Dark Knight trilogy, it's Batman stepping in and offering his life on behalf of others. This principle, one of the most powerful ones that I've ever seen. I've never read the book, but I've seen the movie The Green Mile. John Coffey absorbing into himself these ailments of other people and then ends up being executed for a he did not commit. Why is this reflected so much in the stories that even our culture who may not intend something in a Christian way or not that they are telling? You may say, well it's just wishful thinking it's what we wish would happen. I'm convinced it's a lot more than that. It's because substitutionary atonement, someone stepping in and doing something at great cost, sacrificing on others behalf, it's the only Story that makes sense to bring resolution to everything that's broken in our world. It's the only real story. It's the only way it could ever be fixed. I couldn't do it. You couldn't do it. Jesus could. And Jesus did. Now today we're going to sing a song, and it's a song It's it's a time for you as, both as a Christian, if you're confident in that today, or if you're not confident in that today, if you have any questions at all about that today, it's for both of of those groups to think about today. Here's what I ask you to think about as we sing the song and get ready to reflect on with our lesson today. I hope you've seen the personal language in all of this. Christ died for our sins. That includes you. He died on your behalf, our behalf. If you are a Christian, if you are in Christ today, I hope that today is a challenge to you to remember the price that was paid on your behalf and to, to propel you forward in your devotion to the God who loved you that much to make substitution for you. If you are not sure if you're a Christian today, how could you look at this and see the sacrifice that was made on your behalf and acknowledge that there's no other way out of it for you and to see that it's there and it's being offered for free to you? Yes, a life of devotion. That is part of it. Grace costs you nothing, but it will cost you everything in the life that you live for him from this point forward. Maybe that's part of why some of us hesitate. And we should think about that before we make that commitment. But he's paid the price. His death for your life. If you haven't accepted that today, If you haven't expressed the faith that you believe Jesus is the Son of God who did that on your behalf and that you are willing to take that step of repentance I don't want to be a part of that kingdom I was in before I don't want to be a slave anymore I don't want to be exiled anymore I want something different and I'm ready to walk forward in the direction you have me to go my God that's what repentance means confession of Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, it's an extension of our faith. It's just being willing to say that publicly. It's something that you should be willing to say every day for the rest of your life. But we will ask you to say it for the first time if you've never said it before when we baptize you into Christ because the Bible teaches that baptism into Christ is an essential part of being joined to Jesus, of going from being outside of him to being in him. To knowing that this, all of this, that he's my substitute, that I'm accepting that. Doesn't mean you're earning anything. It's faith in the working of God. It means that in that moment, I am going from being outside of Christ to having that appeal for a good conscience from God as I'm putting my trust that he's doing something in that moment to bury me with Jesus and to raise me with Jesus. The old man who is a slave, the old man who is in exile, the old man who is unholy, impure, all of that replaced by a new man who's in Jesus. If that's not your story yet today, Don't keep putting it off. You don't have this freedom and this kingdom and this community and this holiness and everything else that is offered to you. Your record expunged. All of this that we talked about today, you don't have it until you are in him. That's as plainly as I can say it. Won't you make sure you're in him today? Please come as we stand and as we see.